Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen, and we are talking Colorado true crime stories as always. Just a quick reminder, Altitude Crime has a new website, altitudecrime.com. And if you go to the shop tab, that will take you to the Altitude Crime Etsy shop, where there is a sale until December 21st. It is 20% off all items. If you checked a couple weeks ago, some of them were updated, but it is all of the items now, so you can get that 20% off. So make sure to check that out. And I've added some new merchandise. As a little fun fact, you might not know that Altitude Crime also has a YouTube channel. Don't get too excited. The videos aren't like visually interesting. They're just a static image. But we do have a whole different listener base on YouTube and have just reached 3,000 views over there. So between that and our podcast listens, we are well on the way to 12,000, which is so awesome. Okay, guys, we are due for a historic crime, and today I'm covering one that's both a crime and a state conflict. And this incident had a lot of influence on not only Colorado history, but was hugely significant in the eventual creation of labor laws in the United States. Additionally, there were a lot of deaths in this case that were never brought to justice. So today, I am covering the 1914 Ludlow Massacre. This was an event that took place within a labor strike that was the deadliest in U.S. history. So before we get into the details leading up to this conflict, I want to talk a bit more about life as a minor. I think we kind of have this caricature of what a minor looked like or how they acted or how their life was like if you're not familiar with mining history. So in the 1880s and 1890s, drilling and dynamites really started to be used in mines a lot. And by the early 1900s, They also use things like deep tunneling and small cage railroads to be able to get coal and other items out of mines. And by 1910, coal power was how the nation ran. It was our main energy source here in the U.S. But while coal was keeping the nation running, there was no democracy in a coal camp. Miners were seen as nothing but grunts and their families were disposable. Oftentimes, the mules were treated better because they were more expensive to replace. Mines had extremely dangerous conditions, both because of explosions, but also because of the chemicals within the mines. Gold may have brought people to Colorado, but coal kept employment in Colorado. The coal industry also brought a lot of diversity to the state. Miners were a range of ethnicities and made up some of the most diverse populations in the state. Many miners working in Colorado at the time of this massacre were Greeks, Italians, Austrians, and South Slavs. Well, these workers were actually hired to replace other ethnicities that had gone on strike over a decade prior. Greeks came in a large wave to the United States. In 1897, less than 15,000 Greeks were located in the U.S. altogether. But when the 1898 market crash happened in the country, 170,000 Greeks would enter the U.S. between 1901 and 1910. The population of Greece itself was 2.5 million, so that means 7% of their population moved to the United States. There were entire provinces in Greece that would lose all of the men in their area 
area to immigration to the U.S. But once they were here, conditions were a shock to the Greeks. They went from an economy driven by the plow to one driven by industrialism and monopolies. Remember, this is just right at the time of antitrust legislation starting to happen. Now you might wonder, in the wake of a past strike and having to replace mine workers with people of different ethnicities, why didn't mine companies choose blacks located just in the south of the U.S. over the Greeks? Well, the answer is the Greeks were cheaper. They would work pretty much any wage to get a job. In fact, a Greek could get paid $1.75 a day while a German or a Welshman would get $2.50. As you can see, color played a big part in the mines. White miners were often given supervisory or safer jobs, while non-white miners and immigrants were sent into the bowels of the mines where the work was more grueling and more dangerous. There were no limits to hours that a miner worked. And while the men worked overtime, their families especially the women, were really taken advantage of by the mining companies. Mining was a long process. Miners had to dig holes to place explosives, haul the coal out once it was blasted out, and then make sure supports were built to support the growing mine cavern and also lay rail for the coal cars. Coal seams are really firm, but the rock around them are unsteady for walls and roofs, and roof cave-ins were constant. However, miners were only paid based on the amount of coal they took out, not in this dead time it took to build walls, move rails, and everything else. Two men together could load about seven or eight coal cars a day, and they were paid between 39 and a half to 50 cents for each ton. But even the weighing process was unfair for miners, and sometimes they weren't paid for what they actually took out of the mine. For example, in Pueblo, carts initially weighing 5,500 or 6,000 pounds happened to weigh only 3,000 or 3,500 when the company weighed them for the minor payment. While rails were put in the mines to move the coal carts more efficiently, that didn't mean that mining companies paid for new rails. Miners would often have to move these rails, which were about 16 pounds. This sounds like not a lot, but they would have to haul anywhere from 500 to 600 of these a day. And again, like I said, getting paid for none of this additional work. Each miner would get a brass tag with a number on it at the beginning of the day that they would attach to their coal cars. The reason for this was twofold. During weighing, the company would know who to pay. And if there was a cave-in or explosion, they would know who didn't come out of the mines. Imagine this. Miners would be on edge the entire day. Any noise could seem dangerous. But it wasn't just the noise of a cave-in that was deadly. Methane gas and dust creeping through the air could make any space prime for an explosion. Now you might be wondering, weren't there some safety precautions put into place for miners? There were safety codes in Colorado, but they often weren't upheld. These codes were the responsibility of mine foremen. However, the state never scheduled for examinations and never certified them, so they were never concerned about safety for the miners. And the state had very few mine inspectors, so when they were at mines, they had such a short time to be there and actually inspect that they weren't really the least bit effective. But a mine company's control did not end when the work ended. Most miners and their families lived in closed camps, which were surrounded by barbed wire, and anyone would be questioned if they wanted to leave or enter. Housing, supplies, and medical attention served as a level of control for the company. Even groceries and movies available were dictated by the mining company themselves. The company store may offer the same products as what was in Denver, but often for up to 40% higher of a price. 
and men would get fired for not buying at the company store. Here's a little math for example. Most miners took home about $1.68 a day on average. That's around $30-$35 in today's money. It would cost 38 cents for a barrel to buy clean water because a lot of these camps were really notorious for having typhoid. So then that left them with only $1.30 and that didn't count the boarding that they had to pay the company and food for their families. So with this in mind, by the end of the day, most miners were working and gaining zero funds. And on top of it, what money they did spend went right back to the company. They would get paid, then go to the company store for powder, tools, food, the company doctor, anything, rent, and it would all go right back in the mining company's pocket. As late as 1913, many miners were getting paid in what was called scrip. Basically, this was a company fund and not U.S. dollars that they could take or spend anywhere else. There was state law against this, but nobody was monitoring it. But in a twist of capitalism, even though there was poverty in the mining camps, meat was cheap and easily available to make sure that the miners always had enough energy for those long, unbearable work hours. So let's talk about some of the locations of these mines, because this will come up as I tell the story a little later on. So all of the mines in Colorado were pretty much based on the eastern slope of the Colorado Rockies, and they were split into what was called the northern and southern fields. The northern field had coal towns that were surrounded by alfalfa and sugar beet fields. The area included Boulder, Weld, and Adams County, and included places like Frederick, Lafayette, Monarch Mine, and Vulcan Mine. The southern field was just that, southern, and included Los Animas and Huerfano County. These are really at the southern tip of the state and include places like Trinidad, Ludlow, Aguilar, and Walsenburg. While there were a few different coal mining companies in Colorado, the one we're going to focus on for this story is CF&I, also known as Colorado Fuel and Iron. They managed a number of the mines, including Ludlow. The northern and southern fields were controlled by only a few companies, and this meant strict living for miners depending on the policy of each company. But CF&I was the largest private employer in the state. John Rockefeller Jr. got the company as a present from his father, the senior Rockefeller. Near its birth, CF&I had 14 mines and 69,000 acres of land. But by 1913, prior to the Ludlow Massacre, it had 300,000 acres and included steelworks in Pueblo. CF&I would often send recruiters to find laborers for the coal mines, and they were known to visit Italy, Czechoslovakia, Germany, Yugoslavia, France, and Greece. The reason for this was not innocent. Basically, the company thought that if there was a language barrier between employees, it would make it hard for them to unionize. As of 1911, a really great minor take-home salary at the end of the year was $696. Rockefeller Jr., on the other hand, made $960,000 in dividends. That's right, $1 to every $100 spent in wages. And if you're wondering, in 1915, the Rockefellers had given $250,000 to charitable causes instead of giving it to the miners in Colorado or anybody else. The labor strike of 1913 in Colorado, Ludlow Massacre, and ensuing coalfield wars were not out of the blue. Tensions over labor policies had been building in the area for almost 50 years. This generation of immigrants was really between a rock and a hard place. They were both the cogs of industrial America, but trying to make a better life for themselves in the land of the free. 
In the prior strike, which happened in 1903 and 1904 in the Cripple Creek area, it was the Western Federation of Miners that was the union that really headed that off. The struggles really came when in 1904 the militia was sent into the area. This strike resulted in a number of deportations of miners that were just looking to get a decent work life. And even in 1904, some of the strikers had been put on rail carts and just dumped in the middle of the desert with nothing. And here's some other notable things that happened in the few years leading up to the 1913 strike. Between 1910 and 1913, 618 coal miners were killed. And 1910 in specific was riddled with mine accidents. The numbers averaged out to a death of a miner for every 38,000 tons mined. That means that in 1910 alone, over 400 miners died in Colorado. 210 of these died in three different large explosions through the state, while the remainder died in smaller accidents like rock falls. On June 19, 1912, a pocket of gas killed 12 men instantly on an overnight shift. One survivor was pulled from the mine, but he did not come out unscathed. He was burned terribly. Although the deaths of immigrants in the mines continued to add up over the years, the coal companies were rarely found to be at fault. Why would they, when the coroner's juries were controlled by the companies? Remember, a coroner's jury helps a coroner decide the cause and manner of death. So the companies were able to buy these juries off, and it meant that the deaths were always an accident. The most that families of victims were ever given was $700 as death benefits. But more often, the widows were given only the $20 coffin their husband was buried in. And the struggle was not only in Colorado. On September 17, 1912, in Bingham, Utah, there was a strike on the Utah Copper Company by the Western Federation of Mines. And the Guggenheim properties in Nevada were struck next. By November, gunshots had rang out in both of these situations and had killed four Greek miners. I don't have the numbers for other ethnicities of miners, but we can assume there were more casualties. Just two months later, on November 17, 1912, there would be a walkout of 63 Greek miners in Frederick, Colorado. The following day, all but three of the miners in the camp joined them. This is when a man named Louis Tikus gained the attention of labor representatives. He was the one to construct this walkout. But the conflict did not end there. Mining company reps set a building on fire in Frederick, knowing the unionizers would be blamed for it. Then, a scuffle a few days later between a unionizer and a strike breaker led to the Baldwin Feltz detectives descending on the area. Now, if you aren't familiar with the Baldwin Feltz, they basically were brought in to do the mine's dirty work. They would go undercover as mine guards or just go in as detectives altogether and either investigate, harass, or generally cause conflict with strikers. One of these men swore that a gun had been slipped to Louis Tikus, and six Greeks were sent to Weld County Jail. But when they were put to trial, it was clear there was no evidence, and they were all let go with small fines. Now, you've probably noticed as I've talked about this that I have focused a lot on the Greek mine workers in this area. This is because their plight in Colorado is probably one of the more documented ones. So I've pulled a lot of information from that. I highly recommend the book Buried Unsung by Zeus Pepin Nicholas. He really dives into the history of the area, the history of the Ludlow Massacre, and how it correlated with the Greeks' life there. It's a great emotional read, too. He really reflects it based on his own 
Greek heritage. So I have a link at altitudecrime.com if you want to check it out. But that is why I talk about the Greeks a lot. And honestly, Louis Tikas does play a huge role, not in the Ludlow Massacre, but in the ensuing Coalfield War. Louis's real name is Ilias Anastasios Spantidakis. He was born on March 13, 1886, in a village called Lutra. As a boy, he had many pets and tamed combative species like dogs and cats to spend time together peacefully. As he grew up, his father wanted him to continue in school, but he had an urge to go to America and traveled there with men from his village. Lewis was 19 when he left for the States and would turn 20 on his way to New York in a boat. In March 1906, Lewis landed in New York and he would end up in Colorado six months later. He would become part owner of a coffee house at 1746 Market Street in Denver. This kind of work was familiar for Lewis. His father had also owned a coffee shop in Greece. This coffee shop became a big gathering place for Greeks. Basically, everybody would stop there for word from home. They would use it as a location to drop notes for other Greeks that might stop by and really was overall a hub for the Greek community. This really led to Lewis becoming a leader in his community and in Denver. A bit later, on April 1st, 1910, Lewis would make his declaration of intention at the district court in Denver amidst the Ludlow conflict. According to the book Buried Unsung, the paper that he would sign said, quote, It is my intention in good faith to become a citizen of the United States of America and to permanently reside therein, so help me God, unquote. These papers showed your loyalty to the United States and helped with some of the nativism going on in the country. This is also most likely why he Americanized his name to Louis Ticus. Lewis left the coffee shop for whatever reason to essentially become a scab at the mines. He was replacing strikers in the area. He had learned English faster than most of his Greek counterparts, so this set him up to represent his fellow workers really well. And he would end up serving as an interpreter for the union. And at Ludlow, he was the leader of the tent colony once they went on strike, which we'll get to a little bit later. In the beginning of 1913, there was a huge move to unionize the Southern Field. From 1906 to 1910, the Southern Field had seen seven mine explosions that killed 272 miners, and four of those mines did belong to CF&I. It was found that organized or union mines had 40% less fatalities. In 1912, minor death rate in Colorado was 7.055 for every thousand employees. Imagine that. How big is your office? And just imagine that rate of people just disappearing from your office every year. In comparison, the national rate was only 4.29 compared to 7.055. This meant there was 8.9 deaths for each million tons of coal. It was also during this time that an additional 75 Baldwin Feltz agents would also arrive. A strike in El Paso had already started in April of 1913, and Louis Ticas had been sent to check that out. In August 1913, in Trinidad, an Italian organizer named Jared Lippett was shot and killed by Baldwin Feltz detectives. And when it was investigated, it was determined to be a justified killing. This made the push for strike even more heated as miners entered the fall of 1913. 
Also in the fall, the county of Warfano recruited 258 new deputy sheriffs to help with the conflicts at the mines. But with this number of recruits, these were not discerning men. They basically took anyone that was interested, which meant they could have ulterior motives, be bought by the coal company, or just generally not like immigrants. The law was often on the coal company's side. So them gaining all of these new recruits really strengthened the mining company's control. But to prepare themselves, the union made sure that their men applied as game wardens so they could carry firearms in case a conflict occurred. In the southern field, three quarters into 1913, 13 men had already been killed in scuffles. And that was just the number of Greeks, so again, we can assume that number is higher. On September 12, 1913, Lewis prepared to speak to miners and got a woman called Mother Jones involved. Now, you would think with a name like Mother Jones, that would be someone who would be meek and not somebody to reckon with. You would be wrong. National attention came to the strike in Colorado thanks to Mary Mother Jones. Mother Jones's maiden name was Mary Harrison, and she was an immigrant from Cork, Ireland, who was born in 1830. She would end up in Colorado in 1903, and she was a spitfire. Her key phrase was basically, in the days of pre-suffrage for women, she would raise hell without the ability to vote, and she did. Her husband, who was an Iron Molders International Union member, and the memories of the Haymarket riot and the first National Railroad strike would drive her into the world of labor politics. She worked really hard to protect minors and their families, and was really an agitator in the social community. She organized marches and protests on behalf of minors and often got wives and children involved in the cause. She also made minors realize that they could try to get a better life. They could protest. They could ask for more from their companies. And she did all this when she was in her 80s. After this meeting with the miners, Louis Ticus, and Mother Jones, the miners created a list of demands for CF&I. This list included union recognition, abolition of the guard system at the camp, raise in tonnage wages, enforcement of state mining laws which were in effect but not being used, an eight-hour workday, the right to choose housing and doctors, pay for work other than coal tonnage, right to choose stores for commerce, checks at weigh-ins. With this list, they gave the company a deadline of a week. When CF&I did not meet these requests, the strike officially began on September 23, 1913. This was at the directive of the United Mine Workers of America and consisted of about 10,000 miners. During this strike, CF&I would push miners and their families out of the towns that had been created by the company. This meant the miners then took up tent camps. 13,000 miners in all would take action in this strike. But Ludlow's tent camp was the largest, with about 1,300 miners, women, and children. And they fully set up shop. The strike camp included a Greek bakery, a coffee shop, a large tent for gathering, and they placed it in a location that kept strike breakers from getting to the mines. This tent camp was even strategically lined out. They had streets that the tent sat along, and they even had a medical tent. For what they were dealing with, this was super civilized. But keep in mind, they're about to hit winter in Colorado and would be living in tents during heavy snows. During this time, strikers would start to wear red bandanas for identification, and the guards would start to refer to them as rednecks. The guards would often do sweeps through the strikers' camp looking for weapons, but in reality, the strikers never really had enough firearms to ever totally protect themselves. 
For added protection, the strikers would dig cellars under their tents so that the women and children would have hiding places if gunfire broke out. Once the strike started, conflict was pretty much constant, and it happened on both sides. While the strikers were being harassed by the Baldwin Felts and guards from the mine, they were also harassing the scabs that would come in to take their places. This time, the mine companies worked to replace the current workers with blacks from the South, which would start even more racial tension that we will talk about next week. That's right. I know this one's a little bit short, but this is a lot of content to go over. So we will have a second parter that will probably be a tad longer next week. So really you have this setup of what's going on in the Colorado coal mines at this point. Next week, what we're going to cover is the Ludlow Massacre and then the ensuing retaliation from miners. We're also going to talk about how this affects modern labor laws and really what came from this conflict. So thanks for hanging in there for this two-parter. I do really like to give you as much information on these historic ones as possible. And this one has a lot of dynamics. I am literally just like getting the absolute tip of the iceberg here because I probably can make an entire podcast about this conflict alone. Now, before you go, because I know you have it up on your screen, please follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime if you haven't already. And please feel free to reach out to me on social media on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. As always, you can find source materials on AltitudeCrime.com, as well as check out that shop tab for 20% off all Altitude Crime merchandise until December 21st. Thanks again for tuning in, guys. I cannot wait to complete the rest of this story with you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 37, The Ludlow Massacre, Part 1, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.